We reject the ideology of globalism, and we embrace the doctrine of patriotism. Not only will this tax plan pay for itself, but it will pay down debt. There are moral and legal obligation questions that I think we'll have to wrestle with as a society. When we as people go wobbly on the truth, we go wobbly on America. All you have to do is look at the numbers, look at what we've done. And this is only the beginning. tuned in to Evidence of Design on 100.9 FM WXIR in Rochester. This is Evidence of Design. I got to introduce who we have today. We have my good friend and co-host Matt Treadwell. If he uh, if he were running for office, he'd be the only candidate to run on an anti-jobs platform. Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks. Is it true? Yeah, probably. Yeah. And also Mary Lawrence on the board, also good friend and co-host as well. That's me. Thanks so much for being here, tuned into your local grassroots community radio station. What are we talking about today? On today's show, we are getting into the latest budget proposed by the Police Accountability Board here in Rochester. The PAB has proposed an annual budget of $5 million. This would be a drastic expansion of the current funding the PAB receives. The PAB argues, and advocates for it argue, that the increased budget would allow it to do what it was tasked with doing by the voters who a few years ago voted to institute and create a PAB, a Police Accountability Board, here in Rochester. Namely, to investigate and resolve all allegations of police misconduct. There's around 500 a year here in Rochester. So the PAB argues that it needs more funding to do its job of investigating police misconduct, but also to reimagine policing here in Rochester, to reimagine how our criminal justice system works and how the police institution works to ensure that, well, we're not just protecting and serving in name, but citizens actually do feel safe, do feel secure, and that their rights are not being infringed upon by the continued episodes of police violence that we've seen throughout the country. So we're talking about the Police Accountability Board's proposed budget in the first half of today's show. In the second half of today's show, we're talking about the continued increase in the spread of misinformation and disinformation. This week, the federal government suspended the distribution of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine due to reports of blood clots in a very small number of people. That was a huge boon to vaccine skeptics, to right-wing trolls, and to, well, just the social media culture of favoring the spread of not true information. So we're going to get into vaccine skepticism on today's show and talk about what we can do to combat misinformation and disinformation because golly, it has hit home 
for so many of us, including myself recently, finding tons of folks who just believe the most outlandish things. You might even say that the misinformation is viral. But um bum we need the sound effect going here. Well done, Mary. Well done. Evidence of design, we, we are all about critiquing economic inequality. We investigate the causes and critique the effects of economic inequality and advocate for solutions that would make our society more just and equitable. We really appreciate you joining us here again on 100.9 FM WXIR. Mary, are we broadcasting through Facebook at this point? We sure are. Wonderful. So you can see our beautiful mugs on Facebook at Radio EOD. We are live streaming there so you can see us inside of the studio and get in touch with us both visually and uh, auditorily. I don't know if that's the right word, but you get what I'm getting at. Yeah, you can join us in the comments. We can also comment OMG multimodal communication these days, folks. Really exciting. So Radio EOD on Facebook. Otherwise, if you're tuned in on the dial or on WXIR's tune-in page, we appreciate you being here. You can also communicate with us in the old-fashioned way, 585 219 is that the right number eight 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 nine okay yes it is i just what i do is i just launch into the number and then sometimes i'm giving my like personal cell phone or like a work number or like my <laughs> friend's number <laughs> and then i have to check myself halfway through to be like wait a second lizard brain are you are you operating correctly so good 585-219-8889 585-219-8889 8889. give us a ring or comment with us on Facebook at Radio EOD. Let's not waste another moment. Let's talk about the Police Accountability Board's proposed budget this week. As mentioned, the Police Accountability Board is a new institution formed in Rochester a few years ago. It was voted on by City of Rochester residents and overwhelmingly, folks voted in favor of creating an independent Police Accountability Board. This replaced a previous kind of civilian oversight board of the police that was arguably largely toothless and kind of uh, ineffectual for over a decade. And so the PAB replaced that. City Council kind of uh, pushed that effort, and it exists now as an independent police accountability board led by a team of folks who are proposing to expand its budget to $5 million a year. If that budget was approved, the PAB would effectively be funded uh, at a ratio of 1 to 20 to the RPD. So for every $20 the RPD gets in funding from the city per year, the PAB would get $1. That's, uh, you know, that's just an interesting ratio. We're just sharing that to have in the back of your mind about context here and number play. So big increase for the Rochester Police Accountability Board proposed in this year's budget. Mary, let's get into this. Can you take us through kind of... Uh, specifically what is in the proposed budget? What would the $5 million go to? Absolutely, Jason. So this comes from the 85-page budget proposal, which I do want to mention is publicly available on the City of Rochester's webpage. So if you go to City of Rochester backslash uh, PAB backslash budget, you can look at either a breakdown of this there's kind of a summary or you can get a link to the full report if you want to look this up for yourself um, and have a little bit more of a visual. There is a handy chart in this uh, proposal that describes where all of this money is going to be allocated. And generally it's to four main areas. So within the 
Police Accountability Board, there are going to be three main branches. Those are the Bureau of Officer Accountability, the Bureau of Systemic Change, and the Bureau of Administration. So these each have, you know, different responsibilities based on what was outlined in the city charter for the Police Accountability Board to do. The Bureau of Officer Accountability, which will take complaints, decide whether the Police Accountability Board has jurisdiction over those complaints, and then investigate and bring those to court, that will get almost half of the $5 million proposed budget. So about... 2.3 million and the uh the bureau of systemic change is going to be what's overseeing the police department and making policies that could change it in the future uh that will get about nine hundred thousand dollars in this proposal the third is the bureau of administration so of course in any organization, you have to have organization, an organizational structure. So you need people who are going to oversee. You need to have uh, people who are making sure that everything is being done legally. And you need to have education and community outreach. So that's what that division does. And that will have another around a million dollars. That does obviously leave a little bit of extra money. So about $850,000 Um, is anticipated to go to other fees. So these would include training expenses for employees, public engagement, and translation and interpreting so that everything that's being done will be available to communities who don't speak English. It's a lot of proposals there. Big changes to the Police Accountability Board. Namely, Mary, you named uh, the, the PAB proposing to establish three different bureaus. One bureau to investigate complaints against the RPD. One bureau to oversee and push changes to policing at large in Rochester. And another bureau to just oversee the PAB's general administration and to make sure that its operations are accessible, transparent, functional etc. And again, you can read the PAB's budget proposal at cityofrochester.gov forward slash PAB forward slash budget. Mary, why have a PAB in Rochester? It's a lot of money going towards this institution. There is a lot of effort that went into creating a PAB, a lot of effort still out there, a lot of conversations about policing. Why should the PAB get money? What would it do with it and how would it change society for the better, they would argue. Sure. So this isn't the first time a civilian oversight board has existed in the city of Rochester. As you mentioned before, there was already a civilian oversight board that was formed, I think, almost half a decade ago, if not more. I think the 90s or something. Yeah. That, well, so the document it, says 90, 1992. That's when the one that was existing, but there was one even before that that Mm -hmm. then dissolved, and then there was another one created. Um, So it's not a new idea to have an oversight board. The issue with the recent one is that it was part of the RPD, the Rochester Police Department. Um, So civilians who, I believe it was a board of three people, first of all, which is not big enough, um, and they were trained by the Rochester Police Department went on ride-alongs, so it wasn't really a separate entity in the way it really needs to be to have appropriate accountability. And 
So the issue basically is that there wasn't enough accountability and transparency within the police department. We weren't, you know, as as a community, we weren't getting actual information on what was going on. Um, Obviously, you know, probably, I don't know anyone who's not aware of the killing of Daniel Prude last year. We didn't find out about that until months after it happened. And that's a, that's a really big issue. And those officers won't, weren't brought to justice. And by the way, we had the PAB then. We, we did, yes. But <laughs> yeah. it wasn't, it didn't have a budget. No, so. totally, yeah. No, I'm not, not, not poo-pooing the PAB. I'm saying like even with the PAB, you know, there's still lots of things that one might not find out in operations of, of the Rochester Police Department. Well, mm-hmm. they have to be cooperative. And, exactly. and that is, you know, yeah. that's something that, this is a, a an enormous step to doing that, but the department still has to cooperate. So yeah. basically this is to combat misconduct and bring officers to justice who do utilize their positions in a way that's violent or, you know, takes advantage of, of people who are not in power. Yeah, it's a really good point, Mary. You know, I, I, again, I don't mean to poo-poo the PAB. I'm trying to say that uh, it's not enough just to, hey, you have a PAB now, give yourself a pat on the head and go sit in your corner and not raise your voice anymore about potential police misconduct, right? You voted on the PAB, you have the VAB, everyone can go home now. Uh, this happens all the time in government and governing where bodies, organizations that don't want to be scrutinized or audited will fight against having third parties, neutral arbiters take charge of investigating its conduct. And then uh, if those things end up being created, these neutral third party arbiters that investigate their conduct, they'll try to sort of, you know, make them toothless and remove their power. We saw this a million times in the Trump administration, notably in, in the CARES Act that was passed in 2020 and last year when the government gave out uh, you know, millions, millions and millions of dollars to businesses. The Trump administration tried to remove oversight of where that money went to. So essentially, you, you, there, there was this independent board that was created and they removed sort of the oversight and auditing of that board to make it essentially toothless, feckless and, and pointless. And I think you guys pointed this out already, but this actually happened uh, in Rochester before with the last police accountability board, which was organized in 1963 and by 1970 had been dissolved by excessive uh, uh, legal battles with the Rochester Locust Club. So just because something is created doesn't mean that it it's, you know, doesn't still need to be fought for and sort of, um, you know, upheld. Absolutely. And that's really the argument that's laid out in this budget proposal is that without proper funding, this can't succeed in its goal. And I should also mention that one of the main aims of this budget proposal and the the reasoning that five million dollars is requested is that when the police accountability board was created in the city charter the kind of timeline for the goal of resolving complaints is 90 days obviously we have seen we're seeing right now with the george floyd murder trial it is it has taken much longer than 90 days and sort of the goal of the the PAB is to receive, investigate, and adjudicate complaints within 90 days while also creating policies for systemic change and educating the community. That's a lot to do. And without proper staffing, without proper resources, that would be impossible. 
And so the $5 million is to get proper staff, proper resources, and to have the time to be able to resolve these complaints within 90 days. And you're tuned into Evidence of Design on 100.9 FM WXIR in Rochester. We're talking about the Rochester Police Accountability Board on today's show and their proposed annual budget of $5 million, which would establish three new bureaus, one of which would oversee all police allegations of police misconduct and resolve those complaints within 90 days. Another bureau would seek to... Uh, lead the charge of reforming policing in Rochester, so lead uh, the charge of taking community uh, proposed solutions to policing and put them into effect. Another bureau would be in charge of making sure that the PAB is accessible, functional, and, and transparent. So in the first half of today's show, we're talking about the PAB on 100.9 FM WXIR in Rochester. You can share your voice with us, 585-219-8889. We're also live streaming on Facebook at Radio EOD, where you can see us and leave your comments there. Mary, we've talked already that there's been different incarnations of the PAB in Rochester over the past half century, longer, and there's also different forms of civilian oversight boards of police in other cities and places across the U.S. My sense about the PAB here in Rochester is that it's actually pretty uh, forward-thinking that it is actually cited oftentimes I see as a potential model for other police oversight boards across the country. Did you get a sense of that in this budget or what is your sense of how uh, forward thinking our own police accountability board here in Rochester is? Yeah, absolutely, Jason. So that's something that's brought up quite a bit uh, that this has the potential with the proper funding or what they call sufficient funding It has the potential to be really unique throughout the country. And the main difference is the amount of jurisdiction, the area of jurisdiction that the Rochester Police Accountability Board has. So it's really common for police accountability boards to have certain limits on what kind of claims they can investigate. And there are some examples in the in the budget proposal, I can't remember exactly which ones, but often civilian oversight boards are sort of limited to, for example, um, examples of police violence. So if someone is actually physically violent um, or breaks laws related to that. um, So there can be different limitations into, into what kind of complaints are able to be investigated. Whereas in Rochester, they're allowed to investigate any complaint at all that alleges uh, conduct that violates a departmental rule, breaks a law, or is in general deemed inappropriate. So really, uh, when, when we're thinking about how many complaints the Police Accountability Board would be taking in per year, which they estimate could be anywhere from about 400 to 1200 a year based on what other cities deal with. So other cities like um, New York and Chicago specifically, that's a really big range. And of those 400 to 1200, so say well, on the low end of 400, because they have such a high jurisdiction, they could actually have to investigate like 
350 or 360 of those, where another police accountability board that doesn't have as wide an area of jurisdiction would maybe only be able to investigate half. So that's that's part of the that first branch, which takes in claims, also has to decide whether or not the police accountability board has the ability to investigate those. And again, in Rochester, the uniqueness is that they can investigate many of those claims. However, they still do not have the power to hold, um, to actually enact discipline right. on the police. So that is a, an important note. Yeah, it's a huge caveat where the PAB does not have the power to discipline officers for misconduct. That power resides within the Locust Club, within the police union itself, I believe. And there's yeah. been many They can only pressure. recommend. Right. So the PAB can only say, well, uh, it'd be great if you could do this because this officer did bad things. And then the Locust Club can say, yeah, but it was consistent with their training. So the PAB is basically the, the boss from office space. <laughs> right. You know, mistaking your handgun for your taser, it's consistent with their training. Uh, that's perhaps a really bad joke and taste. So I, perhaps I apologize for that because, of course, that's citing uh, uh, another uh, killing by a police officer. I, I don't even know if it was this week or if it was the end of last week at this point. But I think it was this week. An officer uh, shot an individual because allegedly they mistook their handgun for their taser, which that's a novel excuse. I'll give them that one. Novel excuse. Uh, we'll see if it fits into the novel defense, <laughs> the tried and true defense, I guess. So perhaps not so novel anymore of saying that officers did nothing wrong because it was consistent with their training. So there are ongoing court battles, legal battles, locally about whether or not the PAB can have some more teeth to oversee officer misconduct, what it can investigate, and most importantly, whether or not it can actually effectuate discipline. As of now, that answer seems to be no with ongoing court battles between the Locust Club and the PAB. What is the sense, Mary? Do we have any sense of how likely it is that the PAB's funding could pass and actually end up in this year's budget? You know, that I I don't know. Um, I'm actually not sure what how that decision is going to be made. I'm not sure if it's voted on. Um, so unfortunately, that's not something I'm fully aware of. Yeah, and there's certainly a lot of folks out there who, who could be on the show and who could share their thoughts with us who are much more well-versed in the PAB's function and uh, local politics and debate, in which case you're most welcome to share your thoughts with us at 585-219-8889. Again, that's 585-219-8889. Or also check us out on Facebook at Radio EOD and leave us a comment there as well as we talk about the Police Accountability Board's proposed $5 million budget increase on 100.9 FM WXIR in Rochester. What else should we know about the PAB, Mary? Is there anything else in its proposed budget that is worth paying attention to? That's a really broad question. Uh... <laughs> and I want a specific answer. Oh, boy. All right. There may not be. I'm just curious uh, what came out to you in the 80 or so page uh, proposed budget. We've already covered that the PAB is proposing to establish three different bureaus that would organize its its administration. We uh, I don't know if we cited the number, but I think they're proposing to expand 
the number of folks employed on behalf of the PAB to like 50 people, which is, sounds to me quite large if I got that number right. You know, not large in a bad way, just large as in, wow, that's a lot of folks working on police accountability in Rochester. Yeah, I think, so I already mentioned this a little bit, but I think what really struck me was the focus on the timeline. Um, Because that's not really something that I had thought about beforehand when, you know, especially when we were voting on the Police Accountability Board, which we did talk about on the show a couple years ago when, when it was first on the ballot. So this idea of reviewing, investigating, and adjudicating within 90 days is a really strong focal point. And that's how the budget really frames how they're going to pay for things. So they discuss, you know, $5 million is the minimum, actually. That's not, you know, the maximum that they need. That's the minimum that they would need in order to succeed in um, going through these complaints within 90 days. And that's only the majority of them, right? So they also have this sort of chart in the in the budget proposal that discusses what could happen with different levels of budgets. So if they have a budget of say seven and a half to $10 million, that's a really high level of success where they anticipate being able to investigate these 400 to 1200 and 1200s would be insanely high for them to have to investigate um, in a year. That's a huge number of complaints. That's also not a good reflection of. <laughs> no, no, this. that's terrible. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, um, so with a budget of seven and a half to ten million dollars, then they would have the highest level of success, right? Obviously, because then they could hire more people. They have to have lawyers on staff, like. And lawyers are not cheap, <laughs> you know? People who study law invest a lot in that, put a lot of time in that, and need to be paid well to reflect it. They also mentioned that they want to have a competitive rate for employees within the Police Accountability Board. And this was also something I hadn't thought about, but it makes a lot of sense. If you pay people a good rate, they're going to want to stay on. So one issue that might happen with civilian oversight boards is that people get burned out because there's too much work there because if there are a lot of complaints, there's a lot of work and not enough people to fulfill it. And so people end up leaving and there's a high turnover. Obviously, when you have a high turnover, not as many things can be as effective because you're having to spend time training people. So the idea is to offer a competitive salary that would allow for retention. So you train people one time and then those same people stay on. And as they, you know, go through training and go through more time, they become much better and more efficient at their jobs. And that would make a huge difference. So being able to offer a good salary out of the gate is much better than just having a high toner of work, which wouldn't allow the agency to be as effective. And I think one thing that contributes to a lot of burnout with these civilian boards policing in general is too, is the, the, the negative effect of feeling like your work isn't going anywhere. Mm -hmm. So you spend all of this time investigating things. You spend all of this time compiling evidence. Sometimes you feel like action should be taken against something. Sometimes you feel like it doesn't in the event where you do feel like action should be taken against something, the powers that be the structures as they are 
prevent action upon making that change. And therefore you feel like, well, what gives? Why bother doing any of this work anyways when, you know, it's just a, it's just a perfunctory performance of, of justice when that isn't actually going to happen. So I think also ensuring that the PAB has the teeth to actually do what voters uh, voted on it to do is, is an important part. And we know that there are problems with policing in Rochester. We know it because they're the over 85%, it might even be in the nineties. I forgot the exact number, but it's on the RPDs, its own data portal. Over 85% of city of Rochester police officers are white and live outside of the city of Rochester. So the vast, vast, vast majority of officers in the RPD do not look like nor live in do not look like the residents they exist to so-called protect and serve, nor do they live in the community in which they are protecting and serving. That's, that's a problem. We also know that the RPD has lots of officers compared to the number of people in Rochester, compared to other similarly sized cities across the country. The RPD is one of the largest staffed, meaning it has a lot more police officers. Than, than many other jurisdictions, including neighboring cities like Buffalo and Syracuse. And you might say, well, we, those off, it's fine to have more officers so long as there's more crime, right? But if you compare the crime rates, that is not borne out either, where Rochester doesn't have a commensurately large <laughs> increased amount of crime to equate to having that many more officers, you know, 750 sworn staff in the RPD per se. So those are just kind of two technical, uh, data-driven, um, systemic perhaps issues with the RPD, but also of course the actions and the lived experiences themselves of the people who live within the RPD's jurisdiction and a history of potential of violence or misconduct. This is not to say that every officer does that. This is not to say that officers in the RPD do not do good work. Uh, I'm, I'm not saying that. I am saying that there are reasons to look into rethinking how policing works across our country and specifically in Rochester. And I think this is a win-win for everyone because it allows people to be more comfortable living their lives in their own skin and not face extrajudicial killings or violence or reprisal for things that are a threat to others in society, like getting pulled over because you have a, an air freshener hanging from your rearview mirror. And also I think it's a win for officers too. So they don't have to respond to as many issues that are either mental health related or poverty related. Because so much of what we see in policing is policing punishes poverty. And that's not, I think, why we want police to exist. Absolutely not. And I think this is, this certainly isn't an end point. You know, creating a police accountability board is not the answer to police misconduct in total, there still does need to be a huge reformation and a, and a reimagining of what public safety is. This is, however, a good first step to that. And I think that's recognized within the accountability board itself. You know, they understand that this isn't like just, you know, taking complaints about officer misconduct is not the end goal. The end goal is reimagining public safety. And that is really what this is a first step towards. Right. And that requires all of us. And that's why the PAB is meant to be a civilian run, civilian guided institution here in Rochester. Right. 
So we're going to end our coverage of the PAB's proposed budget increase there. You can read it yourself at cityofrochester.gov forward slash PAB forward slash budget. You're listening to Evidence of Design on 100.9 FM WXIR in Rochester. For the remainder of today's show, we are going to transition to talking about vaccine conspiracy theories and the continued increase in spread of both misinformation and disinformation about many aspects of our society, but particularly we'll focus on vaccines. We'll be right back after a short break here on 100.9 FM WXIR. Hang on. Mulberry Leaves by me. By Sestrugi, which is Match Band. And this is Evidence of Design on 100.9 FM WXIR in Rochester. Welcome back. Give us a thought. Give us... <laughs> give us a thought. Give us your thoughts <laughs> right now. <laughs> we want them. We Just will, one. <laughs> we will take them <laughs> and eat them. <laughs> I want your thoughts. <laughs> Did you say eat them? Yes. Oh, okay. I use Dream Eater for those who play Pokemon. <laughs> so <laughs> give like, us your uh, thoughts. Sure. <laughs> um, Snorlax. No, not Snorlax. Uh, drowsy Mane. I'm replaying Pokemon Crystal right now, and I talked to this guy who gave me a TM for Nightmare. I forgot that was a move in Pokemon. Who would have thought that it was in the second generation Nightmare? Who knows, folks? If you want to talk to me about Pokemon, 585-219-8889. Or if you want to talk to us about more serious matters, I don't know. Pokemon's pretty serious to me. You can talk to us about vaccine conspiracy theories, or still share with us your thoughts about the Police Accountability Board, 585-219-8889. We're also live streaming on Facebook at Radio EOD. Yes, Matt. Nothing. Okay. I was You're just thinking about drowsy. Just breathe. <laughs> His name is exactly how I feel. The hook for today's topic on vaccine conspiracy theories is an NPR article. Don't get too excited there, folks. All right. It's called The Most Popular J&J Vaccine Story on Facebook. A Conspiracy Theory Posted It. That is the theorist. title. Thank you. A Conspiracy Theorist Posted It. That oh, is, that's exciting. Indeed. What's exciting about that, Mary? Name one exciting thing <laughs> I about like how that you agreed with her initially. You're like, oh, yeah. <laughs> what is exciting about that title, Mary? I, I mean, exciting doesn't necessarily mean good, but it is mm. like, it's intriguing. I want to know more. That's what I mean by exciting. That's how they get you. That's how the conspiracy theorists get you because you get excited. You're like, ooh, this is much more cool than a bunch of three people talking about budgets for police accountability boards. We're talking about chemtrails from airplanes, you know, stuff Ooh. like that. So that's how they get you, Mary. Don't latch on to the hooks. I'm biting. Does this look dangerous to you? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, SpongeBob. <laughs> so that's an NPR article. Again, the most popular J&J vaccine story on Facebook. A conspiracy theorist posted it. It was written by Miles Parks, came out this week. Long story short, the hook to launch this conversation is they're writing about after the federal government this week announced that it would put a halt to the distribution of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine due to there being uh, reports of blood clotting happening in uh, women, actually, mainly women from who have received the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, that they put a halt on the distribution of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine to wait further studies to make sure that it's safe and efficacious for people to use. Well, it was a huge boon to conspiracy theorists and anti-vaxxers and right-wing trolls. And the NPR article cites how among the top of all the top stories shared about Johnson & Johnson on Facebook after 
the federal government put a halt on the distribution of the J&J vaccine. The number one story that was shared wasn't by the New York Times, wasn't by CNN, wasn't by even Fox News. It was by a conspiracy theorist. That's, what was the story? Well, this, so here's the interesting thing. So a lot of times, conspiracy theorists can spread completely fake information, right? Uh, think of an Onion article, although Onion articles are satirical, so they're not fake news. They're meant to be funny and meant to be, you know, cheeky. Just like Tucker Carlson's show. <laughs> right. And, Slash existence. And Matt, of course, you're, <laughs> this is a much different discussion, but Matt, of course, you're, you're citing something that we covered previously, which was uh, how right-wing shows like Tucker Carlson, folks uh, uh, put lawsuits against Tucker Carlson for claiming that he spread this information. Well, he got off in court because his lawyer successfully argued that uh, reasonable viewers of his show should not expect Tucker Carlson to be engaging in uh, things that are meant to be taken literally. <laughs> or is that whatever. oxymoron? Reasonable viewers? <laughs> yeah. So the idea is, no, 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 you can't blame Tucker Carlson for the thing he says, because if you're viewing his show, you know that he's engaging in political innuendo, which of course is complete and utter tosh, uh, because people watch Tucker Carlson and believe the things that he says. And the idea that there's a rational viewer out there whose job it is to discern truth from fiction shouldn't exist coming when you're watching a news article or a news program, right? Fox News. So anyways, that's a different discussion, but <laughs> so keenly related in many ways. So when we're talking about the spread, Mary, of conspiracy theory, sometimes it's simply the spread of complete fake information. Uh, we saw this in the 2016 campaign. I mean, we see it all the time, but mainly in the 2016 campaign where folks in Eastern Europe were writing just fake news for money because it got them clicks and ads and uh, they spread it throughout you know, the online discourse and complete fake information. People read it, people follow it, people may or may not believe in it, completely fake. However, in this case that NPR was citing in this article with the number one trending uh, information about Johnson & Johnson on Facebook after the federal government halted its distribution was actually a link to a CNN article. So it was a post that linked to a, you know, presumably legitimate source, CNN, presumably legitimate source. CNN is not known for being in the business of spreading complete disinformation, right? They're a news organization. However, what is most commonly seen now with the spread of misinformation or disinformation in many ways is the disingenuineness of the poster in relating uh, the context to the report. So I'm not perhaps explaining this well, but basically the person who posted this uh, misleading tweet or Facebook post about the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, they linked a CNN article, but their context, their own writing in response to that article was essentially fake or, or it was not correct. It was misleading. It was lacking the full context. It was disingenuous. And that is what we so often see nowadays with the spread of disinformation through social media and it goes through the social media campaign, uh, social media platforms algorithms because it is linking to actual sources like CNN articles or New York Times articles or, or other news source articles. The problem is it's the context that people are posting about in relation to the article is false, misleading, disingenuous, lacking context. There is actually a specific name for it, which I am trying to find, but there is a, a it is a, a common propaganda technique where you take 
something out of context and in order to use it in a malicious way. And this has come up in a lot of different situations. Um, so this is a good example. I'll let you know if I find what it's called. <laughs> yeah. And it's nothing fancy. You know, this isn't a, a, a super intellectual phenomenon. The idea that you can say, I read in this one article this thing here, and this is why this thing over here does or does not exist. So and I know I'm being vague here because I don't want to promote the, the, the misleading information that was cited in the article or the post, but it's basically saying something to the effect of there is some evidence to suggest that vaccines can be harmful for people and therefore uh, you, know, you shouldn't take them because they do more harm than good. You know, that's super, super broad. But that is not at all borne out at the evidence. For instance, just in this example of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine causing blood clots in a few folks, I think when the decision was made to stop the distribution of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, there were seven or eight reports of blood clots. That's out of the millions of doses that were already distributed. Seven or eight instances out of millions of doses distributed. Also, one of the main common side effects of COVID-19 that people may not be as aware of because it is thought of more as a respiratory disease, but it is not just respiratory. It's also, it vastly affects the cardiovascular system and causes blood clots, which can cause things like brain aneurysms if the clot is formed in the wrong spot. So that's not to say, you know, we shouldn't be concerned about a vaccine also causing blood clots, but if you get COVID-19, even if you are asymptomatic, there's still a strong possibility that your body is going to form blood clots. And we don't yet know the long-term effects of that. We don't yet know how long those clots are going to stay in your system, if they'll keep forming. And so, you know, proving that a vaccine can cause them is only part of the picture. Mary, I'm so glad you brought that up because this is the funniest thing about this to me is that you are literally more likely to get a blood clot that kills you <laughs> from COVID-19 <laughs> than you are to get a blood clot that kills you from the vaccine. Like it is literally more dangerous to just get COVID than to get a vaccine. Guess what? That's the That's whole the point. point of vaccines <laughs> <laughs> to lessen the severity of you potentially getting either sick with the, you know, the, the illness itself or to prevent the severity of the symptoms you get from the illness. Yeah. But I think the thinking with that is that like, for some people, getting the vaccine is, like, definitive. It's certain, you know? Whereas, you know, maybe I just won't get COVID, you know? Maybe I'll just risk it. Yeah. And so, not to say that this is, like, smart, but, you know, uh, I can see how people sort of, uh, some people could um, sort of rationalize in their heads that, you know, uh one is riskier than the other, even though it's actually not. Certainly. And to be fair and to be clear, we don't know the long-term effects of the vaccines yet. On the other hand, we don't know the long-term effects of COVID-19. And it's a lot more likely that you're going to die from COVID-19 or have a very severe case if you aren't vaccinated. Yeah, absolutely. And, and people are asking, well, why should I have to get the vaccine for COVID? You know, there are people, there, the flu kills lots of people every year. Uh, I might have not gotten the vaccine for that. 
the flu doesn't kill 500,000 people a year, nor does the flu cause the types of long-lasting issues that COVID-19 is causing people, whether it's res continued respiratory problems, lack of taste or smell, uh, depression or anxiety, cloudy thinking. There's, the jury is still out on the long-term effects of COVID-19. You can say the jury is still out on vaccines. History does not support negative long-term effects of vaccines. History does not support vaccines causing long-term negative effects for people who receive them. I've received my recommended vaccine dosages my entire life. I do not have negative effects in vaccines that I, that I know about. I'm a, I'm a healthy individual. You are, though, a little bit, like, on the spectrum, though. Yeah, I mean, I do have a, a, a third eye in the back of my head. Um, be, besides that, mm -hmm. besides that, I'm healthy as a horse. Yeah. Can we talk about some of the things that people are saying to support this conspiracy theory or how people are, why people are believing it? Um, yeah, so... <laughs> Thanks, Mary, for backing us up from the specificity of this. So the reason why we want to just raise the awareness again about misinformation and disinformation is because I have been struck in having conversations with people close to me, people who I see as sort of normal people. I, you know, normal, of course, being a, a problematic <laughs> term. What does that mean? <laughs> exactly. Problematic term. Everyday American. Normal person. Normal Joe. Right? Whatever. People who I interact with on a daily basis and can have good reciprocal relationships with those sorts of people your everyday acquaintances indeed i've been struck by some of their beliefs recently in regards to not just vaccines but government control conspiracies uh, i think that we well no i know that we as a culture and as a society are struggling right now with a crisis of trust and knowledge <laughs> and yeah, i was gonna say education yeah it's educate so what we are struggling with is an epistemological crisis what that epistemology means the study of of learning of knowing of knowledge that's what it means and we're having a struggle as a society of discerning truth from falsehood of knowing trustworthy sources versus untrustworthy sources of knowing what are uh, helpful productive steps what we can take as a society to move us forward in a hopefully a mutually agreeable way versus steps that might take us backwards or sideways. And of course, we have to have a shared definition of what moving forward means and of what we all want as a society that is super hard right now when we're so fractured and politically polarized. And that's because this is all part of the same stew. It's all part of the same soup. And that we've talked before about how our culture and society, if it were diagnosed by a doctor, we would be a very sick patient right now. We would be a very, very sick patient. And the, you know, the treatment to get us out of being a very sick patient as being a fractured and confused and untrustworthy society. That's the question is what do we do to get through that? I would propose that, you know, we, we promote things like economic justice. We propose giving people the need, the th giving people uh, the guarantees of meeting their basic material needs. So that people aren't struggling to get by every day. So they're not feeling ripped off by elites or the 1% or whatever. And also so people are not drawn to other ways of giving meaning in their lives. Such as conspiracies. My tendency is to believe that people who believe in conspiracies might not 
uh, feel like they have control or ownership over their lives and therefore they can invent their own reality and find things to give more meaning to them than what is traditionally provided to them to our current broken institutions. I want to point out um, that, you know, I think something that we don't talk a lot about, especially in mainstream media when it comes to things like this, is that I think part of the reason why conspiracy theories thrive so easily in contemporary parlance is because our history and our society is riven with examples of actual conspiracies, uh, of actual uh, examples in which the uh, public faith placed in institutions and organizations has been shown to be misplaced. You know, Johnson & Johnson itself is no stranger to this with their uh, talcum-based baby products having been linked to cancer, costing the company, you know, billions and billions of dollars in lawsuits over the years. And I'm actually looking at their Wikipedia page right now, and it says that uh, internal documents have shown that the company had known about asbestos contamination in their baby products since as early as 1971 and had spent decades finding ways to conceal the evidence from the public. So, you know, I'm not saying that necessarily everybody who consumed this particular uh, conspiracy theory on the vaccine knew that or had that in the back of their mind, but I think there is, like, a general sort of, like, collective unconscious understanding that things are unfair and that stems from living, living in a capitalist system that prioritizes profit and exploitation, and people are just used now to getting screwed. And they think that things are weighed against them because they are. <laughs> yeah, the, things totally are. And so here's the key point, Matt. For these individuals that I cited as an example of being surprised at their susceptibility and belief in conspiracy theories, they too share the belief with me that things are skewed against them, that things are skewed against us. Because, as you said, Matt, they are. And they, too, share with me the belief that our society is economically unequal and that we're getting ripped off. The problem is, is that unlike us on Evidence of Design, where we argue for reframing, for redoing, for reformatting capitalism to provide for more basic goods and material benefits and to lessen greed, instead of our ad advocating for that future, which is one that we believe on evidence of design, will actually reasonably, objectively, factually, uh, legitimately, helpfully help everyone out in society, these folks believe in stuff that isn't helpful at all. And it's complete fact and fiction. So we can agree on the basic premises, society is broken, society is fractured, we're getting ripped off. But then the question is, what do you do with that information? Do you go down the path, say, of wanting to re reframe capitalism to stop having companies rip you off? like Johnson & Johnson, to stop having Purdue Pharma get half the country addicted on opioids, to stop having the oil and gas industry prevent action on climate change by telling you that fossil fuels aren't harmful? Do you want to fight against the tobacco company for hiding the harmful effects of nicotine, causing lung cancer in untold numbers of people? The, li the list goes on and on of you getting screwed over by companies and politicians who support corporate greed over human rights and lives, right? The question is, do you want to do something about that and use the power of government to regulate corporations and to invest in human rights and decency, or do you want to believe in tosh like disinformation and misinformation on social media and all these other outlandish claims about a deep state and pedophiles 
and chemtrails left by airplanes and vaccines being microchipped with 5G and Bill Gates and George Soros and all of that crap. That's crap, you know? And so do you, we can agree on the same facts, but what leads you down to that path to believe in crap as opposed to believing in stuff that we think on this show would actually change society by regulating corporations using the power of government funded by people? I really appreciate your use of the word Tosh, Jason. And I, I do think that one of the first steps that we can have into creating this change is making sure that our fellow countrymen are not dead. Um, and so we do support the idea of, of getting the vaccine. And before we end the show, I would like to actually announce where you are able to get a vaccination within the city of Rochester. Last week, uh, Mayor Warren and Adam Bellow uh, we're encouraging city residents to get vaccinated in their neighborhoods. So over the next two weeks, anyone who is over or at least 16 and who lives in uh, many zip codes in the city of Rochester, there's a lot. Yeah. Um, basically, yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to read them all. If you live in the city, basically. Pretty much <laughs> if you live in the city of Rochester, you can get a vaccination appointment at one of four neighborhood points of dis distribution. Generally, these are Thursdays through Sundays, and I am going to read the locations and the dates uh, quickly. So at Baber AME Church at 550 Mig Street, um, well, that one was actually two days ago, Memorial <laughs> AME Zion Church on Clarissa Street uh, was yesterday. <laughs> We're getting there, folks. We're getting there. <laughs> We're getting there. Um, the Greater Harvest Baptist Church on Friday, April 23rd, the Jackson R Center today, Saturday, April 17th, the Edgerton R Center uh, tomorrow, Sunday, April 18th, or Sunday, April 25th next week. The Ryan R Center on Saturday, April 24th. And there is another location which will be announced later. So if you do want to get a vaccine, which, um, you know, can help us by keeping each other alive and... I'm pro-life. <laughs> yeah. um, then please reach out. There are a lot of resources for you to be able to get vaccinated. Um, so please do that. Yeah, and there's, there's lots of other places to get vaccinated too on uh, the, the New York State website for eligibility. Tons of places to get vaccinated. And free. as a reminder, it is free. If you are asked to pay for it, it's a scam. You yeah. do not have to pay for yeah. it. it you may have to vaccine. show insurance card if you have one, but you do not have to have insurance. You do not have to pay anything. It's a free shot. But we've got to end our show there, folks. Thanks so much for tuning in to Evidence of Design on 100.9 FM, WXIR in Rochester. You can always stay in touch with us on our Facebook and Twitter handles at Radio EOD. You can find our past episodes on YouTube by searching for Evidence of Design or anywhere else you get your podcast. I was your host, Jason Taylor, joined by my good friends and co-hosts, Matt Treadwell. See ya. And Mary Lawrence. Have a good one. Until next time, be well, be safe, take care. And bye-bye.